It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along for this week's episode, The Power Hour. Oh yes, that's right folks, we are doing our first ever Power Hour. We've done a couple episodes like this before in the past where we each choose a couple of short topics to go over, but this time we're not calling it Four Shorties or whatever, we're calling it Power Hour. The reason for this is that we wanted to do an episode about that cult. What's that cult? I remember the, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to, I'm still re- uh, researching it and stuff. I know the uh, cult leader was Ashiro Asahara, I think. All right. Yes, that guy. Or that Shoko, Shoko Asahara, I think. Okay. Yeah, we were going to do an episode about that. I might be completely <laughs> mispronouncing that. <laughs> I think I got the last name right, Asahara. We were going to do a, a topic about that cult. However, unfortunately, last week, uh, sometime, maybe Friday, I forget, I got evacuated from Northern California because of the horrendous fires going on there right now. So, unfortunately, I didn't have time to do the research, and in order to get an episode out on time, we are going to just pick some random topics and just vomit all over the microphones. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) Hopefully, some of it will be interesting. Sounds like some, some good times, good nights I've had in my youth. Yes. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, I'm going to start off with, it's sort of uh, my thoughts on extraterrestrial life in the universe, and it kind of relates to things like the Drake equation, but the way I think about it in terms of UFO sightings and that kind of a thing, I call it my top-down approach, because instead of looking at any individual UFO sighting and trying to figure out if that sighting was caused by aliens or whatever, instead I look at it from, is it possible that there's aliens somewhere else in the universe, or even just the galaxy, is it possible that they have technology to where they could come and contact us and all those things? So what I find interesting is just the sheer number of stars in our galaxy alone. Let's look up that number real quick, because I don't remember the exact number. I think, I mean, to me, it's, it's, I I think for sure there's got to be some life out there somewhere, man. For the very fact that, uh, if anything, I really don't want to be lonely, you know? (laughs) <laughs> I don't like uh, thinking about, you know, the fact that maybe we might be the only ones out there. And also, you see the uh, all the different types of plants and stuff that we are able to observe just in our solar system. I think there's got to be enough differences out there in platforms, as it were, I guess, as far as planets uh, for life to form. And also, I don't think we really understand life and what it can form out of to begin with. We, we I'm sure we understand a lot about our type of life that we have on this planet and such, but... I'm sure there's plenty, quite a bit that we don't know, obviously, you know, I mean, carbon-based life forms might not be the only type of life forms, you know what I mean? Yeah, who knows what types of lives are possible, and also, not just life form as far as carbon-based versus whatever-based, but also what kind of time scale. Our perception of time is a biological construction of the way we are designed, Um, whether that's designed by accident or on purpose, I don't know. But the way we perceive time, what if we met some sort of species? Well, let's say trees, for example, a forest of interconnected trees. What if those trees are actually sentient, but it takes them 10,000 years to form a sentence? There's such a time barrier involved there that there's no possible way of even communicating with them. So we could encounter another form of life and not even be able to communicate just because we perceive time so differently. They might perceive it significantly faster or significantly slower than we do, and that'll be a barrier to communication or even recognizing each other as life forms. You know, to us, they might just look like a bolt of lightning or 
vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I looked up the number and it turns out, according to the googly machine, which uh, who knows how accurate this is, you know, it's the internet. The sun belongs to a galaxy called the Milky Way. Astronomers estimate there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone. 100,000 million. What does that look like? Is that like 100,000 times a million? I'm guessing. Oh, man, that, that hurts my brain a little bit. Why do they have to phrase it that way? It's so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. That's I, how much. I have to look at a lot. Okay, there we go. That, now that I can deal with this. So there's something like 10 to the 11th power to 10 to the 12th power stars in our galaxy. And there are perhaps something like 10 to the 11 or 10 to the 12 galaxies in the universe. But as far as we know, that that's just a guess. Uh, we have not observed the entire universe. With this simple calculation, you get something like 10 to the 22 to 10 to the 24 stars in the universe, which that's more than I can really comprehend. It's, you know, it's a mind numbing amount. Mm-hmm. And just to add to that number, I looked up how many exoplanets have we discovered to this date? And it says today, more than 4,000 exoplanets have been discovered and are considered confirmed. However, there are thousands of other candidate exoplanet detections that require further observation in order to say for sure whether or not the exoplanet is real. One of the ways I read about, by the way, just a little aside, is that they detected exoplanets is they used um, the Doppler shift. So I guess the planet orbits its star, and as it orbits the star, it causes a Doppler shift in the light waves coming off of that star, and they can use that to detect exoplanets. And I thought, that's such a trip, because that's like basic science. We could have done that a long time ago, it just nobody thought to do it, I guess. But there are obviously more sophisticated methods of detecting these planets, but for me, that was the most interesting one. Apparently, if you get the right tools... You can just do that at home even. You can detect exoplanets, which is kind of fun. Hmm. But anyways, they're finding more planets than they thought they would in the so-called Goldilocks zone. It turns out that they're a lot more common than we at first believed. So my thought is just looking at the sheer number of planets or stars in our galaxy or even the universe, looking at the age of our universe and our galaxy, and just thinking about it for a second... If there's another planet out there, it's even just one in our galaxy alone, though let's say they have even a thousand year jump start on us. If you think about, we started flying about, let's say roughly a hundred years ago, and in, what was it, 60 years, went from, we went from uh, Kitty Hawk to the moon, I think the saying goes, or something, I forget the exact number of years, I'm not that good at dates, but less than a hundred years, we went from not flying at all, at least on airplanes, maybe that hot air balloons, but we went from controlled flight to the moon in a very short amount of time. So where do you think we'll be a thousand years from now? And in the, uh, the age of the, in a, the galactic time span or the universal time span, a thousand years is nothing. So the way I look at it, it's entirely plausible that there are many civilizations out there who are even a million years more advanced than we are. They would be so far advanced, we might not even be able to recognize them as as other life forms you know just like an anthill might not recognize us as a life form that that would be i guess separated separated by size not technology or dimensions but that's sort of my thought on it is that it's very possible and i think probable that not only are there other intelligent civilizations out there but that they have the technology to visit us if they want and you just think about our own history of physics it used to be 
that, you know, Aristotle or all those guys back in the day, they used to believe that a rock fell faster than a feather because the rock was seeking out its own, its own element. And their observations at the time did sort of back that up. You know, if you drop a feather, it'll float around because it wants to fly. And they, you know, they thought in terms of physics as like elements like fire, water, earth, and all that stuff. So it's not completely far-fetched, given the information they had, to sort of think that way. And so if you threw a rock up in the air at an arc or, you you know, a bow up in the air, an arrow, and that'll arc back down, not because of gravity, but because it wants to seek its element. And the same thing with fire and water, you know, the water wants to be on top of the earth. I forget the whole explanation, but it actually makes a lot of sense um, when you read about how they used to think about things. But that was not that long ago in the galactic or universal timescale. That was just a couple thousand years. So how far have we advanced since then? You know, luckily we have iPhones and now, hooray, um, I guess that's our technological advancements for the last decade or two. But to me, it's entirely plausible that somebody has, or some civilization has broken through the barriers of Einstein's theories and is able to travel faster than the speed of light and is able to manipulate dimensions or time space to such a degree that they could be in a galaxy halfway across across the universe and they would still be able to get to us and observe us. I think that's entirely possible. Just because we haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean that it's not possible to do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of different routes their technology might take. I mean, either they could travel extremely fast by, you know, warping or whatever you want, whatever term you want to use. Maybe they don't uh, drive, maybe they don't travel that fast. Uh, you know, maybe they have some kind of like a chamber that they can lay in, you know, and, and put their bodies in hibernation, as it were. You know, I mean, we've seen plenty of that idea expressed in science fiction, you know. Yeah. Well, and even at relative, so-called relativistic speeds, I watched a series of videos with Carl Sagan, and he proposed that a civilization that was like nomadic, if they could travel half the speed of light... For them, time would pass differently than for us, and they could actually circle the galaxy and observe other civilizations coming and going, and for them it would be a short period of time, like let's say a lifetime, whereas for the galaxy it would be tens of thousands of years. I forget the exact numbers, but it actually works out under our current physics. And we've also talked about something before called the Alcubierre Drive, which the idea behind that is to bend space-time around the ship, and that also could be used for faster-than-light travel using our current understanding of physics, the problem being that we would need an exotic, a form of exotic matter like negative mass or something like that to power it, which we haven't figured that out yet. But the science does work. I mean, the math does anyways. We haven't been able to build it, but it is plausible. Yeah. I think that they're, they're definitely, I mean, maybe this is just my imagination going wild a little bit and maybe my expectations uh, are high, but... One day, man, and I don't think it's necessarily going to be too far off here. There's going to be some kind of a scientific breakthrough that's just going to open the damn floodgates, and all of a sudden, we're we're in the future. You know what I mean? We're in sci-fi films. We're, you know, we're it's no big deal to go to like a space station. You know, outside of a uh, Earth's orbit, even maybe. You know, who knows? Maybe not even this uh, solar system. You know, uh, you know, it, it's it's wild how how fast things can travel once once you have certain breakthroughs. I think. You know, I mean, you know, the Industrial Revolution is, is a good example. I mean, shit, computers and, and all surrounding technologies in itself, just in the last, you know, 30 years alone is a perfect example. I mean, currently the, the rate at which uh, technology is advancing in, in certain sectors is, is damn impressive. 
I mean, you hear people just, you know, in general, people complain about, you know, buying computers and then the next year that's completely antiquated, you know, the, the new faster, bigger, better thing is already out, more shiny, you know, mm-hmm. more improved, you know. I actually have a sort of a theory about that. So I think there's actually a limit to how far we can go with our hardware. You know, we're limited to certain types of brains and we haven't figured out how to really augment those yet, although we're working on it. So I think what's going to happen is they're going to develop an artificial intelligence that can, let's just say, hypothetically, you give a, a computer a hyp- or a program that's artificially intelligent in some way or other. Um, I don't necessarily mean like it has a personality and emotions. I just mean it can sort of problem solve. And you give it a certain problem that has no solution and it can run through this scenario. It can test different hypotheses. Let's say we have a computer, like if they figure out quantum computing, we can have it test, let's say, a million hypotheses a second. It doesn't matter how poor these ideas are. If it can make any sort of improvement on these ideas, then in a very short amount of time, let's say even just a year, that computer will come up with science that we haven't that we haven't thought of yet. So as far as I know right now, every bit of science that we've come up with, our understanding of physics and everything, that comes from people. So what I'm saying is at some point, the computers are going to start coming up with the physics and the science and the theories, and we're going to get to a point where we're, we're going to have things that we don't even understand how they work just because our brains aren't built that way. We can't really comprehend what makes these things tick, but the computers are going to develop the technology and we're just going to use the technology. And an example I would propose to most people most people, I don't think, really know how a car works. You don't know what the the force, the force stroke, the combustion cycle. The, most people don't really understand how that works. They just get in their car, they turn it on, and they go. It's going to be like that, only instead of having mechanics that understand how a car works, nobody's going to know. Only the computers are going to know. The computers are going to build better computers, and we're going to become sort of appendages to the computers. We're going to be, become kind of like an idiocracy where we don't understand the technology at all anymore. Instead of having like a class of nerds that understands and builds the stuff for us, it's going to be the computers. Well, I think it's going to have some similarities also to a wild animal's intelligence as opposed to like a domesticated animal's intelligence, you know, a wolf versus a dog or, you know, even like a crow or raven that, you know, um, is living around a society or a civilization that, you know, has a lot of trash and a lot of stuff that they can just go grab off the street or in the dump, what have you. They don't have to use very much intellect to figure things out mm-hmm. because they don't have to figure things out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It might end up being one of those situations, and I think that's completely probable. If you do have AI and, and you know, technologies doing all the mental work for you, you know, your mental dexterity or whatever is, is, gonna, is not going to be very strong. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you're not going to have, you know, the practice in order to figure things out. You're not going to have to do it. So. Yeah. I mean, a, to be honest, like AI, like it excites me, but it also scares the holy hell, hell out of me, you know? Yeah. That'd be a fun episode to do on AI, do an entire, because that's a topic that's deep enough to be able to do an entire episode on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I just think about it. You wouldn't even need a particularly good AI. You would just need an AI that can make some sort of improvement, any improvement at all. Even if it's one one thousandth of a percentage of improvement every time it cycles through the problem. If it can figure stuff out and make improvements on its own, especially with these quantum computers, they're going to be so friggin' fast mm-hmm. that it'll it'll change the world. This actually reminds me of a, uh, a, uh, a, a, I guess it was a debate of sorts, I suppose, or a conversation um, it turned into a debate, but a conversation about AI between uh, Elon Musk and this guy um, Jack Ma. I think Jack Ma is, I think he's from Japan, I believe. I, I've only seen this. I don't know much about that, Phil. I've only, you know, I'm much more familiar with Elon Musk, obviously, but 
Um, that tax dodging son of a bitch. Yeah. Well, from, from what I understand, Jack Ma works in the industry and developing AI and stuff like that. So um, it's kind of, it was really interesting to see their opinions on AI and, and where it's going to go. And also if you need to be worried about it, you know what I mean? Any kind of nefarious uh, future, you know, and um, both their opinions were very different. Uh, Elon Musk, as mo- a lot of people who are familiar with him and have ever watched him talk about it, is is quite worried about the potential of AI becoming, you know, maybe self-aware or turning against us in some way, shape, or form, identifying us maybe as like a virus of some sort, you know? Maybe that's the way we would look at it. That might not be the terminology an AI would use, but same into same result, you know what I mean? It could happen. But um, that guy Jack Ma basically brushed it off and 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 said it's not something we ever have to worry about. It we created it, so it's not going to turn against us. Yeah, I personally think that that viewpoint is is could be very problematic. You know what I mean? It, it, that could turn that could bite us in the ass. That's for damn sure. My question is not when or how it will be weaponized, or not if it'll be weaponized, but how it will be weaponized. I meant to say. I wouldn't be surprised if, if militaries around the world have already weaponized AI in some way, shape, or form. It's got to be, yeah, because it's such a powerful technology. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you have to assume that the militaries are far ahead of what we know of. So we know of simple AIs, but you have to assume the militaries have far more sophisticated ones. Like, for ex- example, the NSA probably has an AI that filters through stuff and automatically identifies things. Mm-hmm. That would be a fairly simple AI. But what do they have that's even more robust than that? Something that can make evaluations and decisions on its own and even attack foreign powers or even domestic powers that they want to disrupt. Yeah. It's scary to think about. I mean, the I think I would assume probably the most common type of AI that a government or a military would use would be, you know, probably collecting information. Yeah. You know, I, I would assume in some way, somewhere in that, that sector of uh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They they probably have a file on each and every one of us, and they probably track what kind of pornography you watch. Not me. I don't watch pornography. <laughs> and that way, if you ever get on their bad side, all they have to do is bust out, hey, this guy likes, you know, such and such, and isn't that gross? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what people are afraid of, I think, but I, I feel like it would be a little more sophisticated than that. I I can't imagine what it is, but it's probably not good. Yeah. yeah. Character assassination is... is- can be bad, or I guess it depends on what you've done, obviously. But I, you know, I know my my browser history. I'm sure there's a couple of things I'd be embarrassed of, but all right then, you know, <laughs> it's just like was, if that was released, I'd be like, well, whatever. I was just doing research for the podcast, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those. I accidentally clicked on clicked on one of those pop up things, and uh, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I didn't want to look at the the T girl porn. Yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't type uh, T girl into my search browser. <laughs> I wasn't looking up flights to um, Bangkok. <laughs> no, no, never. I would never go there. <laughs> well, I mean, I would, but not for the reasons that you think, you dirty people. <laughs> Speaking of dirty people, Jack Ma, what's up with that name? No, I'm sorry. That's rude. I'm sorry, Mr. Ma. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So let's get back to the Drake equation. Um, I'd like to mention that a little bit just because it's sort of an interesting thought experiment, I guess you could say. This was, this was invented by a physicist named Frank Drake in 1961, or I should say not invented, I, I don't know, came up with, or how would you phrase that? Whatever. So he came up with this is, from what I understand, is basically a thought experiment. It's not an equation designed to come up with a concrete answer. It's more of an equation to think about how you might determine the number of intelligent civilizations out there. 
just to sort of ballpark, you know, what, what might be out there. And the equation has several variables. So first, the, the uh, first variable is n, and n equals the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible, which are on our current past light cone. Oh, whatever that means. I don't know. It's on Wikipedia, so, you know, you could look that up. What's a, wait, I have to check. Light cone. In special and general relativity, a light cone is the path that a flash of light emanating from a single event and traveling in all directions would take through space-time. So I'm guessing they're just saying the number of civilizations that are close enough or able to communicate with us. That's what, that's what I think they mean. Um, anyway, some of the other equations are the average rate of star formation in our galaxy, the fraction of those stars that have planets, the average number of planets that can potentially support life, and so on and so forth. There's a bunch of these equations, and you can put in your own variables to what you think is a reasonable guess that might fill in that particular variable. So you might say, for example, the, the average rate of star formation in our galaxy, we know that. But the fraction of those stars that have planets, we have no idea what that number might be. We're getting closer to an answer with detecting exoplanets, but what our guess right now, as far as the whole galaxy, would still be just that. It would be a guess. We could be way off. But we should be able to estimate within reason, a reasonable estimation. And I think that's what this is all about, is just getting a reasonable explanation or estimation of the number, uh, the number of civilizations using these variables. If you plug in numbers to all of these equations and you make reasonable estimations of what we think they could be, the minimum number of intelligent civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy would be somewhere in the order of 20 and the maximum would be something like 50 million. So that's how much these things can vary. In other words, there could be anywhere between 20 and 50 million other intelligent civilizations right now in the Milky Way galaxy. Um, and there, another, another answer could be that somebody else crunched was between 1,000 and 100 million. So pretty, pretty similar as far as that goes, I suppose. But even at just 20 current you'd have to think that there's a good chance some of those have developed technology in advance of ours, and it is possible that they could have visited us. Well, even just one, finding one different life form on a different planet or something like that, something even uh, relatively similar to our intelligence or as intelligence uh, as a dog, maybe. I don't care, you know? Yeah. That alone, to me at least, would, would you know, suffice for proof uh, that if you find that, man, who knows what the the possibilities are on other planets and stuff, you know, that would blow the, the door wide open, you know? Right. I think, I mean, that'd be freaking awesome. I mean, it's all, I mean, and I think it's very true, obviously from some of the things that we found on like uh, Mars, for example, like some of the fossilized uh, bacteria, I, th I believe that they found on Mars. Yeah. Um, I don't know a ton about that, but I remember hearing about it and it was a big hoopla, you know, and I agree with it too. I mean, shit, that's life. Yeah. Well, they, they found what they think could be fossilized bacteria in a meteor that they think came from Mars. But it's inconclusive the last time I looked at it. They hadn't quite decided. There are some people in favor of it being life, and there's a lot of people in favor of it being just natural air bubbles or something. And it's one of those things where I'm not a scientist, so you, you just gotta, I gotta take your word for it if you are a scientist. I don't really have the background to evaluate that sort of thing. So it's a really fun, really fun idea, though. Mm hmm. All right. Well, I guess that's enough with um, to riff on my uh, my top down approach. How I think, basically, to sum it up, I think it's entirely possible that intelligent civilizations have visited us, 
although I can't say for certain that any particular UFO event or sighting was caused by extraterrestrials, even though I think it's very possible. And uh, one of those, actually, one possibility could be something like a self-replicating drone. So it might not be creatures at all or some sort of uh, biological entity. It could just be machines that replicate themselves, travel to a distant solar system, mine supplies off of meteors or asteroids and replicate themselves and then observe what's there and then report back home. Or maybe just some sort of probe like a Muamua that just sort of launches around the galaxy and looks for stuff. Who knows? Anything's possible. All right. What topic do you have for us there, Agent ETA? Well, uh, I guess the first one I wanted to talk about, and, and I don't know a ton about this stuff, but it really has um, interested me quite a bit, you know, in the past couple years, I guess, because I didn't really know about it before then. Um, stone circles in agricultural, ancient agricultural terraces of South Africa. So the, the reason why it interests me so much is because According to the, the accepted story, you know, that, that you'd, you'd hear, you know, from any historian or, or um, archaeologist, there's never been any large advanced civilizations, ancient civilizations in South Africa. Everything happened in, in the north part of Africa. And that's, you know, what most people would tell you. But it seems that there is evidence to, to the contrary. Um, so a lot of these, uh, these stone circles and stuff, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the heck they were built for, but there's a lot of very odd situations um, surrounding them. So um, the the main person that you're going to hear about that uh, researches these things, his name is Michael Tellinger. And um, the guy I find, I find him very interesting. I also, some of it kind of seems a, a little outlandish to me. Some of the stuff that he's uh, been claiming lately, but um, I'll, I'll start off with the, at the beginning, I suppose. So, so he's a, uh, he's a South African author and explorer. I guess he was a politician at one point too. But um, he, he, as far as I know, is one of the only person that I've ever seen look into this, give uh, lectures and stuff like that. So anyway, um, the stones that these uh, circles are made out of, they, they seem to have like a certain resonance frequency that, uh, resonance frequency that, that um, can be like rang out from like, like, like a bell. If, if you tap these two stones together... Um, it rings like a bell and you can actually look, look up video on YouTube of this. I've seen it. And I mean, it doesn't look doctored to me. I have no idea exactly what that means, but, um, on some of these, these same videos, I've seen people step inside of the, uh, stone circles and with like a cell phone or a satellite phone and they lose like reception immediately. Um, the, these structures don't have any roofs on them. They're most of them are, are like decrepit walls that have most of them for the most part fallen down. You still see the the shape of the former structures, and um, who knows what they looked like when they were complete. But most of these structures are seem to be part of like a somewhat of a grid, and a lot of them are connected. Even ones that are miles apart, uh, you can trace like you know small stone walls leading from one site to another. Um, those are very. Uh, there's by the way, there's there's thousands of those spread across like uh, southern Africa, and I'm not just I'm not talking about the country South Africa. I'm talking about the southern region of Africa, probably the the bottom um, one third of Africa. Um, I would say where most of the stuff is, and um, also those those uh, giant agricultural terraces. These things are so large, and you, you can find pictures of these online as well. These things are so large that they would have to have been used for a giant population. And, and it also wouldn't be used. You don't see pneumatic tribes doing, doing this type of thing or primitive tribes, hunter gatherers. 
they don't have the time to. You know what I mean? This is, these are huge projects that whoever built these, it had to have taken a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of manpower. And you also have to know what the heck you're doing too. I mean, agrological, uh, um, <laughs> I almost said archaeological terraces, agricultural terraces, um, to set them up right to where they drain uh, correctly, the, the soil, you have to obviously keep it nutrient rich, um, especially for the particular type of crop that you're, you're trying to grow as well. That takes, that's a certain type of technology that, that you can't just do that. You can't just put a lump of dirt on the damn ground and grow something out of it, you know? Um, you have to know what the heck you're doing. So these, these terraces are, are giant. I mean, they cover hundreds of acres, some of them. So you, you had to have had a advanced civilization that at least was advanced in agricultural, uh, technologies. Um, a lot of those lands down there are, are very inhospitable as far as like how much moisture is there nowadays. Now, who knows how old these, these things are. I mean, maybe they came from a time period where, you know, that land was a lot more hospitable. There was a lot, you know, maybe a lot more um, plants and stuff and and moisture just in general, whether it was in rivers or, or lakes. I don't know much about the geology, you know, in these areas concerning those things, but these signs are, are plain as day, you know, the, these stone circles and these uh, agricultural terraces. And like I said before, they're so damn large, um, it had to have been part of a... a a gigantic civilization, at least compared to what historians would tell you has been there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't actually know a whole lot about this topic other than what you've just said. So I don't think I really have anything to add. Yeah. Well, all right. So going back to what I was kind of talking about before this guy, Michael Tellinger, I do think he brings up a lot of really interesting stuff about these two topics, the, the stone terraces and um, I mean, agricultural terraces and the stone walls those stone structures um, late, uh, I guess like lately, I'm not sure when he started claiming this, but he's now claiming that a lot of these rocks that make up these uh, stone structures are actually ancient giant, uh, giant bones, hmm. the bones of the Nephilim. Okay. I, I mean, there's a lot of these structures, like I said, thousands. And I don't see how there could have been, if there were giants, that's, that's a lot of damn giants. So would it be like the fossilized bones or would it be? Yeah. Okay, so the and then the bones, I'm guessing they would fossilize in this sort of crystalline way or or something to where it, you, they have this resonant frequency and they ring like a bell, and then they built they built the structures out of giant bones. Yeah, that, that, to be honest, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, it's and I don't know a whole lot about that. I heard him um, mention it in, in one um, one talk he was giving. I forget where the talk was held, but yeah, I don't know. When I started hearing that, I. I Kind of, I was just like, oh, I don't know about this fella. Yeah, I hate it. Somebody might have some really great ideas, and then they throw some weird stuff like that into the mix, well, and they lose all credibility. Yeah, well, and to be qu to be quite honest, I'm not saying that I don't believe that there there might have possibly be, possibly been giants in in our distant past. Um, yeah, sure, that's that's quite possible. I mean, I don't know how much you know about this or how much you've heard uh, about like the uh, early in America's history. Obviously, you know, I know about this more so because we live in the United States. But um, there was a, a popular culture surrounding giants in um, the United States. Like uh, people supposedly have found lots of gigantic skeletons and um, they had had on display throughout different periods in time. Yeah, I remember seeing a documentary about one that was a hoax, but it was a really, mm -hmm. what was it? The, the Pilton Man or something like that. I don't know. Stilton? 
Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I but know. I know that, you know, as far as I know, damn near every Native American tribe has um, legends about about giants. You know, I know that the one uh, one of the ones that is most common is like the red-haired cannibal giants that that would attack them. Hmm. Um, I know that there was a couple different Native American tribes that had that that pretty much the same, you know, tale about that. Milk drinking Mormons? Milk drinking Mormons. Dum, 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 dum. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a South Park fan, so I'm, I'm a bit of an idiot yeah. <laughs> at times. But, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's you know, tales about giants around the world and, and damn near every ancient cult, culture that we know of. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a, a coincidence. You know what I mean? That, to me, is enough for that topic to be interesting to look into. I think that there could be something there. I have no idea if there is, but I, that'd be freaking freaking pretty awesome if there was. I mean, just imagine, man, yeah. actual giants on the earth, you know? Well, even uh, in um, in the Bible, right, there's David versus Goliath. Yeah, yeah. Which I've tried to read it before, but every time I pick up a Bible, my hands catch on fire. So, I, you know, I have to, have to drop <laughs> that. But no, yeah, so from what I understand, that that's not just one guy in the Bible, right? I'm not that familiar with the Bible. But from what I understand, it was a tribe of giants, wasn't it? Am I, am I correct there? I believe so, yeah. So oh, me. it's interesting, just like the Great Flood, which they've actually found geological evidence for a, a global type flood at oh, the yeah, uh, yeah. in during, North America too. Yeah, yeah. Um, what at the end of the beginning of the the end of the Younger Dryas or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, suppose so. From what it, what it seems, uh, it seems like the uh, the Younger Dryas was started by some kind of cataclysmic event and also ended by one as well. Right. I know there's a couple. You know, the the, the two theories that I, I am probably a fan of the most. Would be you know um, like Graham Hancock and, and Robert Shock. Uh, Graham Hancock thinks it was well not not just him. I mean there's a, there's a group of uh, geologists that that uh, I think it's the uh, Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. Uh, I forget what the group is called, but you can go online and, and look it up. Uh, to be quite honest, some of the, the geological data flies over my head just because I'm not an expert in that. But I, I I think I can understand it pretty well when I, um you know a good orator is explaining it to me you know like Graham Hancock that's the reason why I bring up his name pretty often just because I think he's pretty damn good at that uh, him or Randall Carlson but anyway so um, the two theories are that the the younger Dryas was uh, started and ended by meteorite uh, impacts comet impacts something like that or um, a combination of that and uh, solar flares or maybe just solar flares something like that you know and yeah. And uh, I've seen people point out some evidence for both. In my opinion, I, I think it's quite possible that both things might have happened within success, quick succession as far as, you know, um, the long run. You know, it could have been within the same, you know, a couple hundred years maybe, something like that even, you know. Yeah, and there is some evidence for that, not just geological, but also there's the so-called genetic bottleneck where it appears that every person that were descended from on the planet was dead except for about 3000. So er, the population of the planet was at least as far as humans went was wiped out to uh, about 3000 people that were all descended from. And that's the genetic bottleneck. And that would line up with a cataclysm or two. Yeah, absolutely. It, it would. And not just that also, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the, the great die off of the megafauna of North America um, at the end of the younger Dryas, you know, is, is pretty well known as well. And I, I always get pretty frustrated when I hear uh, talk about how, oh, you know, it was the hunter-gatherers that were present on this continent at the time. They overhunted, you know, those, those megafauna and stuff. And I, in, in what world it would, is that a, a possibility? You know, <laughs> even today, you know, there, there's no you know, hunter-gatherer civilization or group of people that we know of, the history that we know of as well, 
um, as far as written history going back, um, none of them ever practice that type of stuff. You know what I mean? They, they don't overhunt. They're connected with nature. They, they, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a, uh, I, would it, could you say it's a symbiotic relationship? Yeah, I, guess, I think you could say that. Right. They sort of help keep things in balance so that, let's say, a herd of, you know, something or other doesn't become overpopulated and starve themselves from eating too much of the local uh, flora. Yeah, and a common theme in a lot of these cultures is, is respect for nature, you know, however they describe it. That's, you know, a lot what it kind of comes down to, I think. And so I, the, not, not, not once have I ever seen any example of, of any hunter-gatherer group of people doing that type of thing. The only time you ever see that is when we have, you know, large civilizations like, like we have nowadays, overfishing or overfarming or overhunting. You know what I mean? Overfarming? What the hell am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I was kind of thinking about like clear cutting forests and stuff like that, you know, and, and setting, you know, replacing like, like first, for instance, in, uh, you know, Brazil, you know, would, would probably be the, the most common thing that people would think of clear cut that forest to the Amazon to uh, replace with freaking soybean farms and crap. You know, although there is some really cool freaking shit that we're finding down there in the uh, Amazon, you know, uh, structures and stuff that, you know, people had no idea were there. And there is an abundance of structures that are, that are there. Or shit, we might as well talk about that. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about as well. Let's do it. And we, we've mentioned it before as well, you know, um, but it seems like uh, every month, every year, um, more and more structures are being found. And um, there's actually being been, from what I understand, there's more and more money being put into uh, the research of, of these structures as well. And it, for the most part, from what I understand, most of it is just documenting where structures are and uh, how many are in a given area. As far as I know, there hasn't been too many actual like feet on the ground type uh, investigations to most of these structures, except the ones that are like right next to, you know, um, villages or, or places that are already, you know, somewhat developed. You know what I mean? So it's not like they have to um, cut through a bunch of uh, thick forest or something in order to get to that spot. So it's more convenient. So, but I mean, th there there are some amazing structures that they can. I mean, they can tell that they're amazing just by, uh, you know, the uh, the radar that they're they're covering some of the blanketing some of these areas with. Um, just from those readouts, so, you know, they can tell that these are some of them are massive structures. And from what I understand, um, they're supposed to be. Uh, I think what, damn, I don't even know. I forget what freaking country it was in. Um, I know it wasn't in Brazil. Uh, recently there was a, supposedly a, um, a very large pyramid, uh, found with like, um, with radar they you know, they're flying overhead with a, a plane. Dang it. I forget what damn country it was in. Maybe I shouldn't even, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll look it up, uh, later or something like that and. Edit, yeah, let's edit that back in. Yeah, yeah, let's let let's edit that part out <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> we're we're not going to do. That. I started I started rambling a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know that. Uh, I think one thing that's important to mention about those structures actually the is so the squared circle. It, it supposedly is is something that um, was invented by the Greeks. They're mm -hmm. supposedly they're the ones that had came up with the squaring the circle. That's not true, it turns out, because they've found uh, actual structures that are in that very shape in the Amazon. So what is that exactly? Is that like you, you put like, a, like a, a cube inside of a balloon and blow it up, and then you, uh, you let the balloon deflate, and then the circle becomes square as it wraps around the cube? No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a circle within a square. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a geometric shape, you know. It's a, you know, it's, you know some of that mathematical shit. 
that I don't understand, but I understand the historical relevance of it. Yeah, I don't actually know that much about it. Maybe we should edit that out too. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good banter. Hey, we, we, we warned you. We showed up saying we don't know anything about any of these topics. We're just going to ramble because we had no time to prepare. And that, hey, that's what you get. I warned you. Yeah, that's what you get. If you're still here at this point, that's on you, not us. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always say. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'll, I'll move on to the next topic here that Hell I have prepared. Yeah. It, this one should just be a quick little one, but I actually had my own UFO sighting about a month or two oh, ago. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. Which, you know, I don't, I don't have UFO sightings too often. Like one, I mean, the, the only kind of experience uh, I had w- one time, if I could just interrupt real quick. Yeah, it, this podcast is all about you, ETA. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, well, one time I looked at my asshole in the mirror. It, it blew <laughs> my fucking mind. <laughs> Changed your life. Yeah, I, I guess that's more like an apparition type experience, you know, like ghost, ghost story type thing. Yeah, yeah. I have a ghost story too, but maybe for keep that one for a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways... Where we live, we live in a valley, and there's a lot of trees and stuff, so we couldn't see the comet Neowise. We kept trying to look for it, but it was low enough on the horizon that it was behind mountains and trees. So we drove all around. We ended up driving to the beach, which is it's about an hour drive, but I wanted to see this comet because comets like this don't come, on, come along too often. So we got there, and we were looking around for the comet, and we still didn't see it. Unfortunately, there was a thick uh, layer of fog in the distance, that um, it was supposed to be at this time about 15 degrees above the horizon. And I'm estimating the fog was probably as high as 20 degrees or so. So if the comet was there, if we were even looking in the right spot, it would have been covered by the fog, unfortunately. But we did bring some binoculars and we were looking at Jupiter, which was overhead, and you could see the moons. And it was was still a fun, really good uh, observation. I saw some shooting stars, uh, some really cool stuff. So while we were doing this, we see coming from over the ocean which is, this is on the West Coast. So we see it coming from the West over the Pacific Ocean. We see basically what looks like a satellite. And if you've, if you've seen a satellite before, it kind of looks like an airplane, but it doesn't blink. It's just a light, you know, a fairly bright light, and then it moves overhead. And then usually when it, it has to be reflecting the sunlight for you to see it. So as it passes overhead, often at some point it won't go all the way to the horizon, but at some point it'll fade out uh, either quickly or slowly, or maybe even just disappear entirely. And the reason it does that is because the angle changes and you can no longer see the sun reflecting off of it. Uh, You know, as it it goes into the, the angle becomes incorrect for reflecting the light to your direction. So that's what usually happens. This particular satellite, which I don't know if it was a satellite, but it was moving in sort of like a a slight sine wave pattern. Like uh, it was sort of, you know, moving back and forth. Um, and to, to, let's see, about the same width of the thing. So let's say the width was about a star. The, uh, the sine wave pattern would have been very small. Let's say maybe about two or three widths of a star. So it wasn't huge. It was not a huge sine wave. It was real tiny. And it was so small that I wasn't quite sure if I was even seeing it. But I asked the person next to me, I said, do you, does that look unusual to you at all? I didn't want to lead them on and, you know, to say, does it look like it's moving or, you know, like in a pattern? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, it looks like it's kind of wiggling a little bit as it moves. And I've never seen a satellite do that before, although I suppose it's possible. I have seen maps of satellites and they do move on their, their orbits are not straight lines. They do move in like sine wave patterns, although it's usually much, much larger than, than just a little bit of a wiggle, but it's still, I suppose, possible 
But the the thing that really caught my attention is when it was uh, somewhere overhead, somewhere overhead of us, as it was moving, it just stopped in place for about two seconds. It didn't slow down. It just stopped for about two seconds, and then it kept moving. It didn't speed up. It just stopped and then went. So sudden stops and sudden uh, uh, motion. So it didn't have to accelerate at all. It just kept going the speed it was before. And I don't know how a satellite could do that. I'm not sure what would do that. Um, If it was a drone, it was not a consumer-level drone because it came from all the way out over the ocean and it passed overhead towards the east and it went all the way over the horizon. I don't know how many miles that is, but even if it was low down or it wasn't that high up, you know, so it would appear to be going faster than it was, that's still a pretty significant distance to go and it would have been going pretty damn fast. Oh, yeah. But the speed, if you've ever seen a satellite go overhead and it takes, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds from horizon to horizon or whatever, they move pretty dang fast. So it it was kind of seemed like that speed, but I've never seen a satellite before just stop, pause, and then go. And I asked the person that was with me, I said, did you just see that? And they said, yeah, it stopped. So, you know, because I was worried I might be imagining it. I wasn't on drugs or anything at the time. I hadn't been drinking or anything. But sometimes you see something like that, you're weird, like, did I really see that? It's, you know, it's so unusual that it's hard, it's hard to believe what you just saw. So anyways, that's pretty much the sighting. There were no aliens, no little green men. I'm not convinced it was anything extraterrestrial or even a craft at all. Maybe it was some kind of ball lightning. I have no idea what it was, but it didn't fit the typical flight pattern that I've seen from any sort of aircraft or satellite in the past. And it was just kind of weird. Hmm. So you didn't get abducted? Uh, not that I know of. Maybe they wiped my memory. Oh, did, yeah. Did you at least ask the person that was with you if he could like like get an anal probe to like you know just get the experience? You know. Yeah. Well, I I, I did ask them, but they declined. Oh, bastages. Yeah. I I don't want to say on the air who the person was that was with me because they want to remain anonymous. But I'll tell you later. You'll you may understand why they they may not have wanted to anal probe me. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have any more topics for us, ETA? I mean, I got a couple of little small ones, I guess. All right. Yeah, there's one one actually um, I wanted to talk about, I guess, and just talk about real quick, because um, I don't know a whole lot about it. is another topic that I actually very recently learned about. No, I actually remember hearing about it back in the day, but it wasn't something I actually even like looked into at all. It was kind of one of those things like, oh, I guess that's, that's weird, you know? So um, supposedly... There's a doctor um, that has found a cure for cancer, and um, the guy works out of Texas, and I believe he also has like a works with some kind of clinic in like Central America, I think, or something like that as well, because uh, relaxed laws and stuff like that. But um, the clinic I'm talking about is uh, the Brzezinski Clinic. Pretty sure they, uh, that's how you pronounce it. But um, they provide a type of therapy, and it's called anti. Antineoplaston therapy, and I doubt that's how you you pronounce it, but it's something like that. But yeah, the doctor the doctor is uh, Stanislaw Brzezinski, and um, some of the kickback that he's had, like in the United States, especially especially with uh, his practice, um, kind of would make sense, uh, you know, for what he's claiming because he's claiming to basically that basically his uh, therapies are being suppressed for the plain fact that it's not profitable, you know. And I would actually kind of agree with this notion that, you know, especially, you know, the medical industry and um, 
pharmaceutical industry in the United States, they're not too concerned with curing things. They would rather treat things over a longer period of time. That way they get more money out of you. Absolutely. In fact, I've heard of a conspiracy, which um, was it the Roth? No, it wasn't the Rothschilds. It was the... Um, it's always the Rothschilds, dude. It was the um, a Rockefellers, maybe, that they worked with developing medical schools and training doctors, and they basically trained them to prescribe medicines and there's this whole this whole conspiracy theory that the whole whole medical system is set up basically to pump you full of pharmaceuticals. I haven't really done the deep dive on that one, so I'm not 100% sure if that's true or not, but it does seem plausible. If you go into the doctor, and uh, like I went in there for back pain a while ago, and when I told the doctor that I didn't want any sort of pain medication, I just wanted my back to be better, he looked confused. He didn't know what to do with me. He's like, oh, you don't want, you don't want pills. Uh, well, uh, you're, you're just getting old. Go home, I guess, is what ended up happening. That's all I got. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, were you done with the, with the clinic? Well, I mean, all right. So, so I guess, uh, one of the things that kind of, I guess would make me lean towards believing this guy is, uh, watching the, the little documentary that I watched. And that's the only thing to be quite clear that, that I've, uh, learned about this, this guy is, is through this documentary um, that I watched, but the, the guy does seem to know what the heck he's talking about. And uh, to a layman like me, at least, you know, um, the, he has a large amount of patients that he has supposedly cured. And I saw, you know, multiple clips of this guy being, you know, uh, greeted by former patients that are coming back to his clinic and just like thanking him profusely. I mean, they're, they're bawling tears of joy. You know what I mean? And it doesn't look like acting to me. I mean, who knows? Maybe they're damn good actors that can make themselves just like, you know, cry a river, you know, the snap of a finger, but it, it seemed like it seemed pretty damn genuine to me. And, and why, why would these people, because some of the testimonies that they're talking about is some of these people had like inoperable full, full blown cancer that had spread to multiple parts of their body and his therapies got rid of it completely. Now, it, to be fair, it's one of those things where one, you know, series of therapies, what have you, um, isn't going to keep it gone for life. It'll cure it and uh, help the body basically, get rid of it. It basically is like a, a super boost to like, I guess you could say like your body's immune system and its ability to fight off cancerous cells. Um, so basically I, I guess the way that this guy discovered this was he had observed that, you know, there, there's lots of people that he has seen older people in general that are either alcoholics or, um, you know, chain smokers or, you know, they're, they have one type of vice like that or, or another, but, you know, there's certain people, and I'm sure, you know, people have observed this before, too, or at least heard people talk about it. I have that, you know, some people just don't seem to get cancer. It doesn't matter what they do. They could chain smoke the whole life. And um, it's not like it's a very common thing, but there are those people out there. And so he kind of noticed this thing. He started to do, uh, you know, research, uh, trying to find out what the hell is the difference between these people, because there's obviously a difference. And it's a genetic difference. So that's what led him to these these uh, particular types of um, treatments um, he was able to, I guess, to find some, uh, you know, I forget what the hell it was, whether it was like a, uh, active genome or something like that. Is that even, I, I forget, I forget what the hell the, the term is, but basically he found something, um, within these people's biology that was different than others. Um, something that was present, you know, in these people that wasn't in, uh, people that tend to get cancer, people who are more susceptible to it. And, um, it's like some kind of a peptide or some crap like that. I don't know. I forget. Anyways, um, so, uh, you know, if if uh, this guy is really legit, then 
I don't know. It, it's, it makes sense that, that he would be, you know, ousted from, you know, medical, medical practice in uh, the United States, basically. And, and I, like I said before, I guess he had gotten quite a bit of a uh, scrutiny from, from uh, the medical industry. Like there's a lot of people basically calling him, you know, a kook, basically. You know what I mean? But yeah, I find that, I find that particular, particular case very interesting and shit, if it really is legit, then this is something that needs to be brought to the world. You know what I mean? This everybody needs to know about this damn thing. You know, because there, there's a lot of people that go through you know cancer treatment that I've talked to people that have told me, you know, afterwards that they kind of would have rather just died because how horrible the treatment was. You know. Yeah, and if you think about our cancer treatment, doesn't seem to have really advanced that much. They still use. The same thing they've used for a very long time, just basically chemotherapy. And it doesn't seem, to, it has advanced, but it's still very similar to what, how it's been for years. You think that they would have been able to come up with some new developments, but I absolutely believe 100% that if they found some sort of cure, there are people that would suppress that cure. Of course they would, because they would lose a lot of money if they didn't. Oh yeah. Uh, who knows how much money? It could be billions, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Well, Sooner or later, you're going to get some terminal disease and it's going to be cancer probably. I mean, there's only a handful of things that you're going to get if you live long enough to get them. And cancer is one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much all I have to talk about at the moment. All right. Well, I got one more thing to throw out there. All right. Uh, I saw on the news recently, as I'm sure many of you have before, that uh, they discovered what they think might be the, the marker for life on Venus. So an astronomer, um, I believe it was Jane Greaves, if I took my notes correctly, in 2017 decided to look for phosphine on Venus, and she found it in the atmosphere. Now, the thing is, is that phosphine can, uh, that can be produced via natural means under certain circumstances, but scientists have determined that that's not really possible on Venus to produce as much phosphine as actually exists there. So the long story short, they think that it's actually been produced by some sort of life, not necessarily intelligent life, but perhaps some sort of bacteria that's floating around in the clouds. And this is a real surprise because it's been thought in the past that Venus was completely inhospitable. I think I heard that, I forget the exact temperature, but on the surface of Venus, it's hot enough to melt lead, for example. There's nothing that's going to survive that. It's supposedly the, the chemical makeup of the atmosphere is very inhospitable as well. But it is possible that some sort of life that doesn't need oxygen could produce phosphine. And they also think this because as the phosphine gets exposed to sunlight, it degrades and is, is not able to stay chemically stable. So they would need something to replenish the phosphine in the atmosphere as well. And there's nothing on the planet through geological or chemical means that, that could do this naturally that they know of. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is produced by life. It's just sort of a clue. And it's something that indicates we should go there and look to see what's causing it. It might be some sort of novel chemical reaction that we don't understand yet. But the chances of it being life, a lot of scientists seem to think that that's the most likely cause. So we're definitely going to go check it out soon. And it's pretty exciting to think that although it's not intelligent life, they may have found 
life on another planet, alien life on another planet. Now, to another interesting idea is that that some people have proposed, sort of like a conspiracy, is that we did send a probe to Venus in the past, and some people some people think that some bacteria from Earth may have contaminated that probe, and as it went through the atmosphere of Venus, that bacteria was released and started to replicate itself and took over the entire planet after a couple of decades, and that's what's actually on there making this phosphine huh. is bacteria from Earth that was able to take hold there. But I don't know how plausible that is. Uh, to me, it doesn't seem that plausible that something from Earth could just go over there and start replicating in such an inhospitable environment that it didn't evolve in. Mm-hmm. But I suppose anything's possible. Um, in any case, we'll hopefully we'll find out in the next year or two. Uh, Venus is the closest planet to Earth. It's approximately the same mass as Earth. So it shouldn't take too long for us to get over there and find out for sure. All right. Well, I guess that's all I had for the power hour. Uh, ETA, is that all you had for this power hour? Yeah, that's all I got for the moment. All right, sweet. Well, I got 15 more seconds to talk before we're at an hour. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually going to be a little short because we'll probably edit some of that out. But but not not the good stuff. We'll keep all the good stuff in there for you guys. All right. Well, thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you.